All right, so we are looking at the parable of the talents tonight. This is the second of the Olivet Discourse parables in Matthew chapter 25. And obviously last week we covered the first one and uh, about the ten virgins. And uh, we are looking at these definitely in a different light than what you normally hear. Most people, when they preach parables, they are making life application principles for us today. That's not wrong. But at the same time, we need to understand that these parables were primarily talking about Israel. And one of the things, and that's across the board with parables, Jesus had specifically said that one of the reasons he was speaking to them in parables is because they, it wasn't for them to know the things of the kingdom of God because they didn't have any faith. So when Jesus was speaking in parables, something you have to keep in mind, while by all means... Learn from those things and ask, Lord, what do you want from me? But understand, if you really want to dig deep in these things, if you want to understand the full and original meaning, keep in mind that Jesus is speaking truths that are hidden from Israel because of their lack of faith. And many of these parables are nailing Israel and calling them out. And most people absolutely ignore that context. And as a, as a result... There's just a lot of things that cause confusion. And, and I'm telling you, more and more, I'm hearing people teach things uh, from, the, from the Gospels, teaching you can lose your salvation, and it's always stuff dealing with Israel and them losing the kingdom, and they just don't understand how that works. And they also don't understand the difference in how we receive the kingdom. And I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if we understand these truths that I'm going to show you in these parables... Nobody's going to be able to convince you Jesus ever even alluded to the fact that anyone could lose their salvation. So, uh, if, but, but most people get confused because they are taking these parables out of context and we got to watch out for that. So verse 14 says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And most people when they read this, they immediately are going to take this verse and apply it to the first century church. But remember, these parables are rebuking Israel. That's how things started. And in reality, this story started way over in Matthew chapter 21. And just real quickly, I'll refer to this. In verse 40, it says, When the Lord therefore the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say, And he will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. So understand, at Christ's first coming, okay, we need to, there was a time before when He had come, and he had given these things to Israel. And at his coming, he came to check up on them to see if they had produced anything. And at his coming, at his triumphal entry, there was nothing produced. So you know what he's doing? He's kind of starting all over. So most people, they see it talking about his coming and they apply it to the future. Well, there's a principle there. But let's not ignore the fact that this is dealing with the fact that at Christ's coming in that first century, Israel failed. And, he, and he's now given the kingdom to someone else. And obviously, they're not going to immediately 
produce the fruit and do what Israel was supposed to do. It's going to take time. So he's going to leave and he's going to come back again one of these days and then see if the next group got the job done. And newsflash, next group is going to get the job done. Okay, proof of that, we're here today. Right, a bunch of Gentiles believers. So, um, get, turn to Luke chapter 19. Because another example too, Jesus told this same parable of the talents actually before, right before his triumphal entry, right after the salvation of Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus, he obviously was a Jew, but he was a publican too. He was somebody who, while Jewish, was kind of an outcast. Somebody that was disrespected and hated by the Jews, one that they, they, did, they didn't like the publicans. But Jesus Christ, we know he saved Zacchaeus because he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so it says in Luke 19, verse 11, right after the salvation of Zacchaeus, it says, and as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So it would, it would seem that many people to a certain extent, understood the significance of Christ's triumphal entry that day. There was a lot that they did not understand as far as their spiritual condition. They, didn't, you know, they obviously didn't understand why Jesus didn't set his kingdom up then. There was a lot that they didn't understand, but at the same time, they understood something big is supposed to happen. But nothing did happen because they were too dirty. So in verse 12, he said, therefore... And he's saying this because they are thinking the kingdom of God's going to come. Because I think some people understood, hey, do you know what this is today? This is the coming of the Messiah. And it was the coming of the Messiah. But it was not that fantastic. When the Messiah came, he starts driving people out with a whip. And so in verse 12, Jesus is explaining this parable. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a far country to see for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered unto them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. And I'm not going to read that whole parable, but it's the same thing where you have some who had some talents and they gained more. And then you had some who went and hid what they had and he was upset with them. So it's the, it's the same thing that uh, the same parable. He tells it before his triumphal entry and he tells it again after his triumphal entry. And so people, they're not wrong necessarily to make application for us today because we are on the mission that was originally given to Israel and that they failed. So understand when we're looking at these parables and we're looking and seeing that Jesus wanted them to reproduce, you know what that tells me? He wants us to reproduce. Okay. Now Israel didn't get it done, but that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And so we're we're right now i want us primarily focusing on the first century application of this so i'm going to i'm going to tell you what this parable these things represent just as all theologians do uh the difference is i think my representations line up with what the bible clearly teaches and i feel like most people are just pulling their interpretations out of a book somewhere and they're not coming to these conclusions by their own study because i am amazed at the variety of interpretations there are on these parables. And it's like most people are just reading their own agenda into these parables. And I don't want to do that. Okay. I don't want to do that. So I hope uh, I'm, I provide significant proof for what I'm saying. But again, parables don't prove the point. But if somebody's parable lines up with what's being taught in the scripture, 
then we can say that's probably credible. So I'll tell you what I think about this. So first off, I believe that the man traveling in the parable is Christ. I believe the servants were Israel. And I believe that the goods that he left them are a reference to the things that God gave Israel when they came out of Egypt. I believe that's when they received the goods. It was when they came out of Egypt. Now, I think I have some scriptural precedent for this. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 34, at the sermon of Stephen, he says in verse 34, I have seen, I have seen thy affliction of my people, which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning and am come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And notice that they, this Moses that they refused and the God that they refused, it was after he showed him a bunch of signs and wonders and they refused him. Now, what did Jesus do? before the triumphal entry. He did a bunch of signs and wonders, didn't he? But what did they do? They refused him, didn't they? And so it says, um, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall you hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers, watch this, who received the lively oracles to give unto us to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, for as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands." And if you remember the story, we're not going to go back and look at everything. After they made, after Moses went up into the mountain, and after they went and they made that golden calf, when and when God came, and when God came down on the mountain, we remember God could not accept them. Remember when God told them to go cleanse themselves, and God could not accept them. And it was after this, and it was or during this time that God gave them the law. God gave them the oracles of God. God gave them the tabernacle. God gave them all the specifics for the sacrifices, for the feast, all the things that God instituted. God gave those things to Israel. God didn't give those to anyone else, did he? God didn't give those things to Egypt. God didn't give those things to the Edomites. Who got it? Israel, the people who came out of Egypt. God gave them all of those things. And I believe that is a rep- I believe that's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about a man traveling in a far country. God came down on the mountain during that time, but Israel is not acceptable. So what does he do? God gives Israel everything they need so they could sanctify themselves, so they could be a holy people. And he's going to, and they're supposed to follow these things. They're supposed to obey these things until the Messiah comes. And so, and eventually, guess what? The Messiah came, but what had they done with all that God had given them? They had done absolutely, absolutely nothing. And in Romans 3, verse 1, it says, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of the circumcision? Much every way chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And it's interesting how you see people, even in the Old Testament, 
who got saved, who weren't Jewish, yet you've got the Jews who are receiving everything, and they're just constantly in trouble. They're constantly being just as wicked as all the heathen that were around them. And so, uh, I'm going to go. So I'm going to go a little deep here for a moment, but I'm just going to tell you something that it would take a long time to prove. I think I proved it when I preached through the book of Zechariah, but I can't do this justice in this sermon because it takes a lot of time. But I'm going to give you a truth that is just not taught by very many people, but uh, it's something the IFB just kind of let slip. But the book of Zechariah, you've got to get this. It is, a prof- it is a prophetical book explaining what God planned to do with Israel after they rebuilt the temple. The whole point of the Zechariah God sent Haggai and Zechariah to get Israel to get busy in building that temple because the work had stopped. And so they sent those two prophets telling these guys, get to work. And if you read, if you read that whole book and if you pay attention, you're going to see that those prophecies had contingencies. Most people read the book of Zechariah like there's no contingencies in there. There are contingencies in there that are clearly spelled out. And, there, and so most people, when they read that book, they're looking for things to take place as if Israel obeyed and accepted the Messiah instead of killing him. And we've got to understand, when the Messiah came, Israel disobeyed. When the Messiah came, Israel had not followed the instructions God gave them in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Zechariah. Israel had not done those things. And so the outcome that we see in there it did not, only some of the things happened in that day. Like, we'll see some prophecies in Zechariah. It's like, yeah, Jesus did that in the first century. But then you'll see other prophecies like, well, that didn't happen. That's still to come. And so then people got to figure out, well, how's this going to work? Because you, some people are saying, well, this definitely has to happen this one way, but it doesn't really seem to make sense. And so that's when they go into all the stuff about Israel being restored and everything. But you got to understand, some things changed because... Of Israel's rejection. So, for example, chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 in verse 20. It says, This is another one that people are still looking for this to be fulfilled as if Israel hadn't rejected the Messiah. And it says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, It shall come to, pa- it shall come, yeah, come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now, folks, when has anything like this ever happened in history, guess what? It's never happened. And Sam Gipp, when he, I remember I, he was the first one I ever heard preaching this passage and he was preaching like it still has to come. And notice how it says, we have heard that the Lord is with you. You know what that means? God with us. And that's when he went into this whole thing about how Jesus was supposed to be named Emmanuel instead of Jesus. And because Mary and Joseph disobeyed God, naming him Jesus instead of Emmanuel, that was never fulfilled. And so at his second coming, you know, that's all about the Jews. God's going to be with us. And then all these things are going to happen where everybody's going to be grabbing hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew saying, we have heard that the Lord is with you. It's not ever going to happen, folks. Okay. It's not going to happen. 
You know why? Because now this was supposed to happen, but Israel didn't do what Jesus said to do. They weren't a light. So understand he let out his vineyard to other husbandmen. So understand you don't go to Jews to find the light. You go to those with oil in their lamp. You go to Christians. You go to God's people. So we can so understand this work will get fulfilled, but through spiritual Jews, through us, not through physical Jews. So, uh, you know, and it's amazing that we even have to talk about these things. But, I mean, a lot of you folks heard that nonsense that was preached and it just he was just dead wrong. This was showing in this passage. God wanted them to be a light to the nations of the world. God wanted people from all the nations coming to him to worship him in Jerusalem. But you know what? We don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship him, do we? Know why? Because Jesus said the time is coming and now is where you know, the true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And so, that, so the thing is, we don't even have to do that. We're not pointing people to Jerusalem. Now, I know some Baptist preachers that are pointing people to Jerusalem. But we don't do that. We don't have to do that. I, I know a preacher personally, not far from here, that literally told a church that he was a guest speaker at that they needed to pay the full fare and make, make a trip to Jerusalem to go to the Wailing Wall to get their prayers answered because there's something special about that place. Baloney. Okay? Bolo- absolute baloney. That, and it, it blows my mind that people preach that. But listen, that traveler is Jesus in this parable. The servants were Israel. The goods were the oracles of God. Israel was the only nation that had a temple. So look at verse 15 of Matthew 25. It says, And unto one... He gave five talents to another two, to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. So here's the big question too. What are the talents? What are the talents? And I believe that is a reference to the ministry. God wanted them to use those goods. God wanted them to use the oracles of God for his purpose. He wanted Israel following his law. He wanted them to use the land for his glory. That was why he took them out of the land for 70 years. 70 Sabbaths, they did not let the land rest. That was God's land. God wanted them using it for his glory the way he said he wanted it done. And Israel did not do that. They were disobedient. God wanted them to love him. He wanted to dwell with them. He wanted them to be his people. And he also wanted them being a light to the world. God gave Israel everything they could possibly need to do every bit of that. God gave them everything. God did miracles for them. God fought battles for them. God gave them that land. God gave them everything. And they wasted it. They did absolutely nothing with it. Jesus called them out for shutting people out of the kingdom of God. So those talents were everything. To, be, to live as a people physically, to operate spiritually so they can have a relationship with God and, not only ha- and, and, and have salvation and be a light to the world. Israel had no excuse at all. So verse 16, Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them five other, talent, other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. Now, what we've got to understand about this, it's important you get this, that this parable isn't about who had the five talents or who had the two talents. That there is just showing 
that's what you do when you have someone be a steward. When someone, if you leave something to someone for them to steward and for them to, to watch over, you expect them to use it for your benefit. You expect them to take it and multiply it. And so this parable isn't really about who had the five and who had the two. There were definitely no examples in that day. God didn't have like another group somewhere that he gave five pounds to that just tore it all up and being a light to the world. Okay, there, That's just showing this is what's expected. You are expected to do something with what you are given. This parable is mainly about Israel who did nothing with what they were given. That's what this is mainly about. And again, we can make application for ourselves personally. You know, some of us have been given a great deal. Well, you know what? You better do a great deal. Some of you have been doing a little or been given a little maybe. Well, you know what? We need to do a little. If that's what we've been given, whatever you've been given, you need to do. That's what God expects. And so this parable is about the one who, who hid what was given to them. Jesus has not changed subjects. He's still dealing with Israel, them losing the kingdom. He's not dealing with New Testament church issues right now. He's still dealing with judgment coming on Jerusalem. So verse 20, And so he that had received the five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received the two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He did the exact same. He, God said the exact same thing to the guy with five and the guy with two. There was no difference in what he said. That's what you're supposed to do as a steward you are supposed to use what is given and you're supposed to multiply it and produce more. That is the job of a steward. But then we get to the last guy. And it says, and Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo there, thou hast that is thine. Now, let's remind ourselves what the talents represent. They represent the things of God, the ministry, the word of God, the way of salvation. And so notice when Jesus came to Israel, not only had they not been keeping the law, not only were they not doing the things of the temple right and you know, defiling the temple, making it a den of thieves, but folks, they weren't even saved. They didn't even have salvation. They, had, they didn't even have faith when he came. And let me tell you, if they would have at least had the one talent, you know what? They would have at least maintained what had been given them. But since he hid it, since it was not in his possession yet available, this is showing how Israel not only failed to produce fruit and to be a light, which is what he's been calling them out for, but they themselves had not even gotten salvation. They had, they had absolutely nothing. What Jesus found in the temple earlier that week was not what he was looking for at all. And so just so nobody gets confused, hey, and this is where, too, people will take this passage, too, and we're going to see in a little bit, it looks like he goes to hell. And then say, you know what, and that could, because we're always applying this to New Testament believers, that could be you. You don't want to go burying what you've been given. Otherwise, you're going to be cast in outer darkness 
weeping, gnashing of teeth. And again, uh, we're going to make a pretty good argument. I think that's a, that's a reference to hell. But here's what we've got to understand. He's talking to Israel. Now, let me ask you, how did we receive this ministry? Did we receive this ministry by the law or did we receive it by faith? You see, Israel, they inherited these things by the law. They inherited it because of their, their birth. You know, people, uh, just because you were born in Israel, understand that did make you Israel, but it didn't make you saved, did it? But the way we got in on the kingdom of God was through faith, through belief. Israel never even got to faith. Y'all understand that? Israel never received salvation, and that's why they were able to lose those things. Because you know what? You can't obtain salvation through the works of the law. Israel thought they were doing a great job on the law. Israel was bragging about all the things they did. They would rebuke Jesus because he wasn't fasting the way that they were. They were rebuking Jesus because, you know, he would do some things on the Sabbath day that they didn't approve of according to their traditions. They thought they were doing just fine, but in reality, they weren't even saved. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I, we did not, we were not born into this thing. None of us were born into this thing. I was born into a Baptist church, but I wasn't born into the kingdom of God. You have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. You have to be born again for that. So there is a difference. So a group of people that had the law, the people that were a physical Israel before God is brought in the new covenant, yes, they were capable of losing the kingdom, especially if they don't have faith. And guess what? They didn't have faith. You and I, we got started. You could say, so it's like, let's say faith's right here. You know, and Israel started over here, and in, in their walk and in their attempt to find God, they never made it here. Y'all understand that? They never made it here. But they still had the things of the kingdom over here. Now, under the new covenant, we don't get those things of the kingdom until we get here. But this is where we start. So does that, does that make sense to everybody? There is a difference there now. So understand, I don't believe we're capable of hiding our talent. When Jesus Christ comes back, even if you've never reproduced anything, even if you've never done anything for him, you know what? You will still have what he gave you. You'll still have that. But it, so uh, there is a difference there now. So that's why you cannot take this passage and make full application to New Testament believers because then it makes it look like you couldn't possibly lose your salvation. But no, you absolutely can't. 2 Timothy 1.8. Turn over to 2 Timothy 1.8. I think uh, this is a good passage to kind of help illustrate something that we often forget. 2 Timothy 1.8 says, Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works. Notice this holy calling that we have. Folks, we have a calling on our life as believers. Not just for to go to heaven, but to do the work of the Lord. To be a partaker of His afflictions. To do the ministry. This calling that we have is not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this is one of the things that changed at the appearing of Christ. At his first coming, he abolished death. Now, when did he do that? He did that at the cross. And in his resurrection, 
He abolished death, and He hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. So understand, and this is where we can get confused on our side sometimes, because on our side, we do we believe salvation has always been by faith. We believe there's always been eternal security. But the, here's one thing that was different in the Old Testament. That ministry, the things of God, it was to those of Israel, whether they were saved or not. And so they didn't have security in that ministry. They didn't have security in those things. The fact that they got circumcised on the eighth day didn't guarantee they were going to heaven. At some point, they had to have faith. But there were still a lot of things that they had, even if they weren't as an individual saved. It's never been that way with us. We got all these things after we got saved. So while they were able to lose the things of God, if they never got saved, you know, we, will, we won't be able to because we are saved. So that, that is one thing that is different. And hopefully, you know, I wish I had more time to go into more detail, more scriptures on this. But there's a lot to that, but hopefully I'm making sense with this. So let's go back to Matthew 25. But thank God, you know, when it comes to that salvation, you know, he's able to hang, he's going to hang on to us. We're not responsible for hanging on to the talent. He hangs on to it for us. Because we got all, we did not get this ministry through the law. Paul flat out said it. We didn't get this ministry through our works. It's something that was given to us because of what Jesus Christ did for us. And so the fact that we are not going to let things fall apart, slip, whatever, Jesus gets all the glory for it. Okay? A lot of us are pretty good at taking glory for a lot of stuff. But in heaven, that's not going to work. All glory is going to go to God for it. You know, keep doing the work but we always need to give glory to God. It's because of him you can even get somebody saved. You know, it's amazing too. We like to talk about how only saved person can get somebody saved. And then we like almost brag about it. But it's like, okay, but the thing is, if Jesus is the only one that can save you and you are saved, okay, I I mean, I agree you need to be saved to get somebody saved, but that's still nothing to brag about because that's not you. It's Jesus Christ. So it's, it's amazing. We find some way to give ourselves credit, don't we? So, uh, you, so you can brag about being able to get somebody saved when you can brag about how you got saved. And guess what? It's not of works lest any man should boast. See, there's nothing to brag about. But verse 26 says, His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming, I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For everyone that hath shall be given and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And like many parables, okay, a lot of times people will zero in on certain details that in reality, those details are Jesus making an interesting story to get people's attention. But, you know, those aren't like the main things that we're supposed to zero in on. Typically, 
It's like the last couple lines where, he, where it's all clear what he's talking about. For example, the rich man and Lazarus story. The key verse that is, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe that one rose from the dead. That's what that, that's what that whole parable is about. Jesus is trying to teach people, if you won't believe the Bible, you won't believe anything. That's what he's trying to teach. Now, you can get some doctrine about hell out of that. Nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, Jesus wasn't trying to give these people a doctrinal dissertation on hell. He was trying to teach them, if you won't believe the Bible, you're not going to believe anything. That, that's the key. The key here to this parable, right here, is that for everyone that has should be given and shall have an abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away, even that which he hath. Why is he bringing this up again? Because he's been talking about how the kingdom is going to be taken from Israel. You know why? Because they were an unprofitable servant. And he said and that unprofitable servant is going to be cast into outer darkness where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's the big question. What does that mean when it talks about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth? Is this talking about hell? Because this is where people get confused too because it's like, you know, some of these Christians out there ain't producing nothing for God, hidden, hiding the talent that they got. You know, they're going to have weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it's like... That kind of sounds like hell. A believer can't go to hell. So is this about believers? Is it not about believers? Well, again, this is about Israel. That's what it's about. And we've, we've explained the differences in how they had the ministry, how they got the ministry, and how we got the ministry. They got it through the law. We got it through faith. So the ministry is secure with us. So they were, under the law, very capable of going to hell. We, under, under grace, are not capable of going to hell. So the thing is, even if you prove 100%, and I think it's pretty clear that outer darkness is a reference to hell, understand we are not capable of going into outer darkness. Okay? But let me just say, just to get your attention, I believe I've been to outer darkness. I believe I've been to outer darkness. In fact, I'm planning on going to outer darkness next week. All right? And... Uh, you say, why would you want to go there? I want to go there really bad. I'm, I'm going there, all right? But at the same, you know, so just hear me out of this, all right? So let, let's look at several references to this weeping and gnashing of teeth that we see. We're gonna, I'm going to show you something here. So in verse, Matthew 8, verse 10, it says, When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that we see this referenced a lot. We see Jesus said this about the centurion who had faith like he hadn't seen in Israel. Because that was Israel. Israel wasn't going to get to go to the kingdom because they had no faith. But people from all over the world, Gentiles, would. It says in Matthew 22.10, So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both good and bad, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there was a man which had not on a wedding garment. He saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. I mean, that sounds pretty harsher. Bind him hand and foot? Cast him in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, few are chosen. What's going on here? This, this kind of sounds like hell. 
Matthew 24, 48. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite the fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, the portion with the hypocrites. I mean, do we think there's anything heavenly about that? Now, I've been reading some books on this. There are Baptists out there who believe in all these different classes of people in heaven. And they believe that there's the bride. And not all Christians are part of the bride. They believe there are the friends of the bride, like the other women, the the virgins in that parable. They also believe that there are friends or guests that are at the wedding. But then they also believe there are saved people who are in outer darkness. There's Baptists that teach that the outer darkness is referring to saved people who are bad Christians. Now, I'm looking forward to debunking a lot of that in the future, but today is not that day. But folks, when you look at this outer darkness stuff, it's a reference to hell. Uh, and it's, it's about to become more clear. Okay? I, just, I don't think Jesus is just going to be, say, I'm going to send you to this, you, know, this, you crummy Christians to the same place as the hypocrites. That's also not hell. Just not as good of a place. And this is almost purgatory. When he's having, except they're, I think they're stuck there forever. I don't know. But Luke 13, 24 says, Strive to enter into the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut the door, and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know ye not whence ye are. So, here he's talking about the Jews like, I'm about to shut you out of some place. You're going to be knocking trying to get back in. I don't know who you are. Then shall you begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. Now, folks, okay, I got got a lot to say here. He's talking to the Jews right there. There's no doubt. It's the same thing he specifically said to the Jews before. He's saying they're going to come from all over. He he says here how there's going to be first which are last and last which are first. Who would the first be? Jew first. Everybody's always talking about Jew first. But you know what, folks? They're going to end up being last. And we see that the last, the Gentiles, those who are on the outside, they're going to be the ones first. Those who are from all over these other places, they're going to be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But you, he said, you all are going to be thrust out. And we have all these pictures of Israel being thrust out into outer darkness. There's no doubt these things are talking about Israel. They're going to be thrust out into outer darkness. They're going to be banging. They're going to be trying. They're going to be trying to get in, asking him, God, to let them in. But he's going to say, depart from me. I don't know who you are. While in the meantime, he's having fellowship with people from all over the world. You got these people banging on the door, wanting to get in, and they can't get, they can't get in. Now turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 40. So again, the big question is, is this outer darkness referring to, is it a reference to losing the temple and the kingdom of God, or does it mean that they die and go to hell? Well, Matthew 13, 40 says, is therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing 
and gnashing of teeth, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath the ears to hear, let him hear. Now, folks, casting them into a furnace of fire, anybody think that might be talking about hell? Talks about how there's going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, I, do, I believe this passage is clearly referring to going to hell, but I'm going to tell you exactly what I believe about outer darkness. I believe that outer darkness literally is speaking of hell and something that is coming for Israel in the future. But I also believe outer darkness spiritually is a reference to the fact that God was going to shut them out of the kingdom because of their rejection of Christ on earth. And their being, them being shut out of the kingdom would bring them great grief and agony over the fact that they do not have the kingdom and that they are not able to get back in. But at the same time, because they're in darkness, they're unable to even see how to get back in. And so, folks, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here when I tell you. I think I've seen this with my own eyes. And so what would, what would you say is one of the most notable places exclusively for the Jews today? What When you think of Jews... When you think of Israel, when you think of Jerusalem, what is one of the most notable places? What's that? (laughs) What's one? The Wailing Wall. The Wailing Wall. I just just watched a very pro-Israel preacher preach a sermon with a Wailing Wall backdrop. I, I I don't even know what to say about that. But... Now that I didn't, I didn't realize this until recently. Did you know that it's offensive to say Wailing Wall? But guess what? I'm going to keep calling it. I'm going to keep calling it the Wailing Wall. Now they like to call it the Western Wall, but the Western Wall and its variations are mostly used in a narrow sense for the section traditionally used by Jews for prayer. It has been called the Wailing Wall, referring to the practice of Jews weeping at the site over the destruction of the temple during the period of the Christian Roman rule. Over Jerusalem between 324 and 638, Jews were completely barred from Jerusalem except on Tisha B'Av, the day of national mourning for the temple. And on this day, the Jews would weep at their holy places. The term wailing wall was thus almost exclusively used by Christians and was revived in the period of non-Jewish control between the establishment of the British mandate in 1920 and the Six-Day War in 1967. The term wailing wall is not used by religious Jews and increasingly not by many others who consider it derogatory. But folks, think about this. Today, one of the most famous sites for Jews is the wailing wall, which is as as close as they can get to where they believe Solomon's temple was. They go there and they weep and they wail over the fact that they lost the temple. Folks, them losing the temple, that was a picture of them losing the kingdom of God. That was a picture of them losing the things of God. And not only did they lose the temple, not only did they lose those buildings, not only did they lose that ministry, but folks, they're not even allowed to go up on that land. They weep over the fact that it's being trodden down of Gentiles, that Gentiles are overrunning it, that Gentiles are going in there all the time. And in the meantime, what are they doing? They're going there. They're praying at a wall. They're crying at a wall. It's a common thing to see Jews at that wall, literally weeping and wailing and crying. You know why? Because they want back into the kingdom of God. 
They want back into the things of God, but unfortunately, because they are in darkness, because they are in blindness, they are incapable of seeing that the way to get back in is to believe on Jesus Christ. And instead, what are they doing? What do they do? What do, what do we do when it's when you talk to somebody and it's just like they're not listening? You can't get anything through. We say it's like talking to a brick wall, and that's what they're doing every day. Right now, there are always Jews over there every day talking to a brick wall, folks. That's blindness. Not only are they doing that, they're doing it in the wrong spot, and they're literally in a place where they're walled off from where they want to get to. They can't get to a place. Where, the, where they used to do the service of God. Where as a people, they used to do the service of God. They used to have the things of God. But they have been shut out of there and they are not allowed back in there. And they think it's because, you know, of you know, the Muslims and all these other things. But let me tell you, they're shut out of there because of Jesus Christ. He shut them out of there. And I'm telling you right now, I believe that wailing wall is a picture of outer darkness. When you go over there, when you see Jews standing and praying to a wall, weeping and crying at a wall, weeping and wailing over the loss of the temple, just understand that's exactly what Jesus said was going to come on. He said, you're going to lose the kingdom. You're going to lose the things of God. You're going to be shut out in the outer darkness. You're going to be weeping. You're going to be crying. You're going to be pounding on the door trying to get back in. But you know what? I never knew you. Now, folks, that's a little bit opposite of what the pre-tribbers are teaching. The, the pro... Israel people are teaching today. They're acting like God did this miracle in the six-day war. Oh, great. So he gave them closer access to outer darkness than what they had before? They're still in outer darkness. They're still not capable of getting in. I'm, t- I'm convinced that the Wailing Wall and that the Jews' practices there are a shadow fulfillment of the prophecy of them being cast into outer darkness. I believe literally they're going to be thrown in hell. One of these days, literally that's going to happen. But I believe the synagogue of Satan's most noble, notable place is not only a place where people are weeping and wailing that they literally have named the wailing wall, but where they are praying to a brick wall. And you know what? They're accomplishing nothing. Folks, you accomplish nothing by praying to a brick wall. You accomplish nothing when you stick a prayer in a wall. And imagine a Baptist preacher telling his church, pay the full fare and go over to Jerusalem and pray at that wall. It's a special place. Dude, you hang out with people that are in outer darkness too long. Don't be surprised when you can't see things real clearly yourself. Let me tell you, that is not right. That is not right. They are accomplishing nothing. They have been cut off from their holy place. They have been cut off from the things of God. And they are so blind. And they are such, and such a, they're not even praying to the right brick wall. And so you know what I see when I see Jews over there at the wailing? I see people in darkness. I see people, it's like a blind man trying to find his way through an unfamiliar place. I see a people crying out, begging God to give them back the kingdom, to give them back the things of God. And you know what? But you know what God said to them? I never knew you. He is not going to listen to to their cries. Because let me tell you, and here's why. So, well, they're calling on the Lord. Well, they're not calling on Jesus Christ, for one. But second, they're calling on the Lord to give them back the temple, to give them back the things that they, they used to have. He's not going to answer that. He's going to tell you, his answer is going to be, depart from me, I never knew you. And what they need to do 
they need to turn away from those things of that wall and they need to they need to turn to Jesus Christ and he'll bring them in light and then they'll see how pointless that is. And let me tell you something. Beware of any so-called Christian Jew who makes a big deal about their Jewishness. Let me tell you something. Any saved person, anyone who has an elementary understanding of salvation should understand how little that matters. And let me tell you too, any saved Jew who is still going to lift up their race, understanding that that's a race of people that pray to a wall, that are literally in darkness and blindness, beware of that person. Now, thank God there's some that are out there. They'll say, yeah, they're blind. They're, you know, they'll, they'll tell you the truth about it. But I tell you, I don't trust any of those people. When the first thing you tell me about yourself is I'm Jewish and I'm a Christian, listen, if that was me, I'm not saying you can never tell anybody, but I'm going to make sure that's four or five conversations in before I bring anything up like that because that, that's not a plus. And it's, it's sad that you feel the need to point that out. It shows you don't understand a lot about the Bible. And, you know, it would be like if, you know, your last name was Dahmer you know, and you were a relative, you know, chances are you're going to change your name <laughs> or, you know, you're going to, you're not the first or let's say, say you were a cousin, you had a different last name. If the first thing you said, yeah, I'm cousins with Jeffrey Dahmer. Why would you want to talk about that? Why would you want to bring that up? That's nothing to be proud of, you know, I mean, but yet these people are You've got so-called Christians, like, yeah, I found Jesus, but then they're bragging about the fact that they're Jewish. Like, oh, I mean the people that pray to a wall? The people that are in outer darkness? The people that Jesus said, I'm going to shut out of the kingdom? The people who I'm going to say, I, depart, I never knew you? That doesn't make any sense. No, what they should be saying is, listen, I'm a Jew, and thank God I'm a Christian. Thank God he saved me. That's what, and that's what any of us should be saying. And you know what? I don't see any other nationality in the world bragging about their lineage and their Christianity. We don't even bring that up. We just talk about we're Christian. That, that's, all, that's all that matters to us, and that's the way it should be. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that this message was uh, a help to everyone and give us a better understanding of these parables and prophecies that you gave. And Lord, we thank you for uh, the ministry that you have given us. And Lord, well, I'm, I'm glad that our salvation is secure and that we can never lose uh, that we can never lose that. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to uh, take what you've given us and be good stewards with it and that we will use it to reproduce. And uh, Lord, I'm glad my salvation is secure, but Lord, my usefulness isn't necessarily. And so I pray you'll help all of us to learn from the, this parable and to be faithful and to multiply uh, what you've given us in your name. We pray. Amen.